0: Acts chapter 20. As I said this morning, and as always, it's good to see everyone out once again this evening and to worship God, sing praises to Him, and to study His Word just a little bit more. And I hope that tonight's lesson will be applicable and helpful for you as we look at a few things that Paul has to say in Acts chapter 20. Tonight, I would just like to look at Paul's goodbye to these elders that he clearly cared So much about, and as we think about some of the things that he tells them with these parting words, I want to just get a little bit of the context, beginning in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how i did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and now behold bound by the spirit i'm on my way to jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there except that the holy spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me but i do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that i may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so we'll stop there for just a moment, but here what we have is, <clears throat> again, just the introduction or the context to what Paul says he wants these elders to think about uh, as he is, is giving this farewell and as he says he's never going to see them again and I think that there's, I think there's a lot of power to these words because sometimes it's easy to just it's easy to just kind of get a blank face and, and read words on a page while being completely uninvested in the emotional baggage of the moment like when, when you think about what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 6 and and, and he says you know I've I'm at the end of the race, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and, 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 and I mean, he's pretty certain that death is coming, that I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering for the Lord. And, and can you imagine being Timothy, your closest uh, friend, your closest mentor, and, and reading these words of Paul, thinking, what if I don't ever see him again? And, and I think that this is impactful because while it would have been hard for Timothy, how convicting would it be? Because when, when as he reads these words, he knows that Paul very well understands this may be the last things that he has to say to him. And so I think that makes these words all the more important to Timothy and I think to us. And And if you knew that you were about to speak the last words to your spouse, or what if you had to Knew, or thought that you were about to speak the last words, have the last conversation with your kids or your deepest, uh, most cared for loved ones in this life. If if, if you knew that you were about to have that last conversation with them, what would you say? You would probably say what you thought was most important at the time. It may not just be, I love you very much. Probably is going to be a little bit of that, but it's also going to be, here's what I want you to think about to take care of yourself. And you would spend that time to make sure that they understood how they could take care of themselves, how they could make things better for themselves. You wouldn't waste that precious time. And so I, I think that there's so much beauty and so much love and so much emotion behind these words. And so as we go throughout the instruction that Paul gives to these elders from Ephesus, I, I, I want to, to, first of all, understand that there is much care here that he has for these people and, and because of that, he is telling them what he thinks is absolutely necessary. So what does Paul think is so important to be the final word in their relationship on this earth? And there's four things I want to talk about tonight. And the first of which is being vigilant for threats that come upon the church. And the rest, I think all, it all comes down to commitment. But committing ourselves to God, committing ourselves to his word, and committing ourselves to service for the brethren, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these are the four things, this is how we're going to break it up at least, four things that Paul says uh, at least makes clear in his mind is most important that these men understand. So let's start with the very first: be vigilant for threats. And I know we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend um, I, I, I'm not going to spend as much time on this because we did kind of look at this as a, a kind of a brief uh, passage that we looked at for a moment a few weeks ago. But but when you think about what he says here in verse 29, beginning. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And so I know, uh, as we talked about a, f- a couple weeks ago, I know the context is pointing probably more so towards those among you inside, but I, I-, I would like to maybe broaden the application just a little bit more because I think we need to be vigilant not only for threats that come from inside but threats that come from the outside as well we need to just be thinking <laughs> we need to be vigilant for any threat whatsoever whether it be inside or outside and of course you know as we just said the context would talk about within the church wolves that are in sheep's clothing as as, as jesus would even talk about in matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 and odd words and so men that you know that that that, you know, apostatize, men that are like Diotrephes in Third John. I mean, we, we know what that kind of looks like. But, but not only do we have to be wary of those kinds of threats, we have to be wary about the threats that come from the world, the cultural influences. The culture is a very big threat of, of, of infection, of corruption within the church because it is, you know, we even have a word for it, so trendy. And if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, I want to look at what this says here for just a moment. Romans chapter 12, cultural influences are constantly trying to invade the church. Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In James chapter 4, uh, we won't go there tonight, but James chapter 4 and verse 4, it talks about how when you try to make friends, be chummy with the world, what you're doing is ultimately making yourself an enemy of God. You can't be friends with the world and have a relationship with God. It just is impossible. Uh, and we even talked about that uh, within the last couple of weeks. But all of that being said, from Romans chapter 12 to James chapter 4, I think it's very clear that that there is a strong, uh, corrosive nature of worldliness that can creep into the church. I don't normally like the NIV. I don't think that it does a good job with, with a lot of the translation. But I think that this is uh, in one place where I think they did well. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 when it says do not be conformed to this world. in the NIV says be, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. And aren't we people who follow the pattern? Who go according to the pattern? That's absolutely vital. For If we really want to be a part of the Lord's church we need to be following after the pattern. But Christ's. But the world offers their own pattern, I mean, constantly, incessantly. Uh, I think a few ways that we see this, uh, at least especially, I think it's affecting the, the denominational world more so. But when you look at the, the LGBTQ and, and so on agenda, I mean, what we find over and over again are people, and even big names like, like I think even Rick Warren, so people who are trying to maybe lessen the severity or the seriousness of, by which God speaks of homosexuality. And the sins that come with these kinds of really just sexual sins as a whole. And people are saying, well, this should be accepted. Maybe we've maybe we've overdone things as we've been looking and, and trying to apply the scriptures to our lives. Maybe there's just some cultural differences between then and now. It's it's very, very easy to start getting into that mindset because you know, customs change. But God's word never does, does it? And so I think there, that's one way that there can be cultural influences that it try to corrupt the church. But not only that, especially a, a big one that I think I see is, is an attack on Scripture, an attack on the inerrant uh, Word of God. Skeptics especially, but I think even Christians are, are permitting some arguments that aren't really good arguments that attack the, the proficiency, the sufficiency of the scriptures that we have before us. And, and I think some of, of what's happening is the religious world is trying to give some like you know they're trying to give a little bit so that way it seems like well hey we're, we're reasonable, we're logical here. We, we, all we want is to all we want is to make you know good logical decisions and, and you know what? I think people that believe that they're probably re- probably really silly. The, one way that we find this is in Genesis. When you have uh, people who come in and start making all kinds of, of not even speculation, but just false notions about, well, you know, the earth, it just has to be, it has to be that evolution is what created this. God used evolution. Uh, Brethren, that's not what Genesis suggests. That's not what the rest of the Bible suggests. But, but there's one big name in the religious world. His name was William Lane Craig. He's a good debater. But what happens is I think he has kind of used this so that way he can have an end with skeptics and, and the atheistic world. To say, you know what, I think that maybe people go a little bit too far in you know, just taking the word for what it says. And I, and I think that maybe we should start thinking a little bit more, uh, a little bit more in a moder- modernistic way. We maybe may, may we need to make our thinking on this a little bit more modern, and ultimately what that does is it attacks the scriptures by suggesting this can't fully be trusted and so I'm telling you there we must be wary of threats from the inside, wolves with sheep's clothing, but we have to be wary of the threats that are coming from the world, cultural influences, but not only that the the uh, frankly as well the religious world at large, the unscriptural religious influences that we see there in first Timothy chapter four in verse one, First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gr- gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, it's interesting because uh, as you look at false teachers writ large throughout the New Testament, throughout the all of the Bible, it, it, there are false teachers that that I mean they share characteristics, but they may not share doctrines. Because in First Timothy chapter four, in 1 Timothy, what we find is Paul is talking about a certain doctrine where people are trying to you know use pleasure in some kind of a way uh, that, that basically suggests well pleasure at all is sinful. Well, that's not true. But then there are other epistles where, where Paul has to say well. It's still about pleasure, but in this case they're trying to say that you, basically you can just be a hedonist. Every pleasure is good, and that's, that's not true either. And so there has to be a balance. I think it's interesting to note that, that you can have uh, the same topic and two different uh, false teachers saying two different things. And so we have to be careful about what the religious world at large says about any matter. We must, not, we must be wary in the sense that we are testing every spirit, as it says in First John chapter 4 and verse 1 that we need to be constantly bringing whatever idea we're talking about, whatever idea we're thinking about, back to the Scriptures to make sure that it, you know, it's actually coming from the Scriptures. Uh, because there are so many things that people can bring in. There are so many things like undoctrinal beliefs, like, like Calvinism which the Bible just, it, there, you never find it in the Bible, and in fact you don't find it for several, several, several years an, uh, after the church has actually been established on the day of Pentecost. And, and so you have little practices or beliefs like that that I think invade the church. Even, I, I know, brethren who have been infected by that. Maybe not, you know, all five points, maybe not just a very strict, strong Calvinist as, as uh, pe- many people would like, but, but soft Calvinism. And that's not the only belief that's undoctrinal that's not the only teaching that's undoctrinal. We need to be coming back to make sure that the teachings that we believe, the teachers that we espouse and that we defend and promote are coming from the scriptures. Unbiblical practices like fellowship halls. There are there are we have brethren that I mean that, that we constantly are trying to have debates with. You have all kinds of books that you can read debates uh, from, you know, uh, 50 years ago or you know anywhere since that time, but you have all kinds of debates that go on with brethren. That, that are fundamentally misunderstanding how we establish authority. And, and, and even instrumental music. Unbiblical practices. We have to be wary of every threat from inside and from out. The church must be vigilant for any and all threats regardless of where it is coming from. And so the first thing that Paul says of his final words to these men is be vigilant for all the threats that come upon the church. Not only that but coming back to Acts chapter 20. <coughs> Acts chapter 20, picking up in verse 32. It says right after the fact, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now we're going to break this up because there are two different things that I I think are mentioned here that we need to be uh, careful that we focus on entirely. But the first thing is committing ourselves to God. And what does that look like? Ultimately, I think it looks like being loyal to Him overall being loyal to Him over every other relationship, being loyal to Him over every other uh, potential idol, every other potential hobby that could get in the way, every potential lust. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 11, I think we have a good example of what it looks like to actually really commit ourselves to the Lord. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 20, Acts chapter 11, verse 20, as it begins speaking about how the word had been uh, preached in Antioch, and it seems to be doing well uh, in Antioch. It says in verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, we'll talk about, you know, the result of actually committing ourselves to the Lord and His Word in just a moment. But I I do want to focus on the fact that I think this is what it looks like when we truly commit ourselves to God, when we are most loyal to Him. The New King James says in verse 23 uh, when it talks about what what Barnabas was doing as he encourages them. uh, In in verse 23 the New American Standard says he he, uh, rejoiced and began encouraging them with all rest of heart to remain true to the Lord. The New King James says to continue with the Lord. I, I think that's a good description of what it means to commit ourselves to God. Often Christians do this but not with God. They don't continue with God. Some congregations continue with their elders. Some congregations continue with the leadership. Doesn't matter what they say. Doesn't matter what they teach. Doesn't matter where they're leading. But they'll continue on. But with the leadership, forgetting who our one leader over all is. There are some congregations that just continue on, but not with God, but with the status quo, the norm. But let me just ask, and we've gone through this before, but who is the one who defines what the norm is? Who is the one that sets the status quo, at least for Christians, for God's people? But our King Jesus. But more into, when you can look beyond just congregations, but even with individuals, some Christians continue, not with God, but with their family. Maybe small kids, big kids. I mean, this was a struggle for me uh, as I was... Uh, getting older and becoming, I mean, becoming a true adult, I was a young man, but I don't know if I could say I was really a man at the point, but I was struggling with just continuing with family, not with God. And I would continue with what, not not what both parents would say, but with what one parent would say. And it didn't matter what that parent would say because, you know, the the love was too strong, you know. Because, the the relationship is too deep, and I can't get rid. Of, I, I can't. I can't betray that relationship. And there are a lot of people that were just like me, that are just like the way I was at the time, not continuing on with the Lord, but continuing on with what a parent or what their both of their parents would say. But remember what Jesus says from Luke chapter fourteen to Matthew chapter ten that this word that is implanted in our hearts it will cause division, and it better, because if we want to be a disciple of Christ but we don't allow that word to make those divisions I don't know if we can really say that we're following after him like like true disciples but not only that some individual Christians that maybe maybe they're older maybe they're what much wiser than than this but instead of continuing with God they continue with what their kids do or with the trends that their kids follow I've seen this too and either way no matter how you look at this it doesn't matter. We are supposed to continue with God. We're supposed to remain true to him, not remain true to everybody else. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes, it goes, you know, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. And we sing that sometimes, but I think a lot of people would be better <laughs> would be better tuned if they started saying something more along the lines of I'll go anywhere and hopefully Jesus will follow after me. Because I don't know if I'm willing to, you know, I don't know if I'm willing to follow him anywhere. I don't know if I'm willing to go anywhere with Him. What does it mean to remain true to God? What, is it, what would it mean for a spouse? When it comes to our marriage relationships, one of the, the closest relationship the Bible says that we can have to our most beloved, what does it mean when we say that we are going to remain true in that sense? Well, for instance, certainly it would mean that we're just, you know, complete infidelity. That's, that's clearly not remaining true to your spouse. But would it be okay if someone said, well, I mean, I won't go that far, but anything that leads up to it, well, you know, I'm still remaining true. <laughs> now, some people may take that argument a little bit too far and try to make unscriptural arguments about marriage, marriage. but, th- but th- that's not what we're talking about right now. But, but when you look at a man or a woman who is trying to remain true to their spouse... And you have people maybe uh, allowing an atmosphere that only hinders that, that continuing with them, that remaining true. Is that really what, what, what uh, remaining true to them it means? Is that really what it means to be completely faithful? I mean, we need to not look at things the way the Pharisees did or the Jews in the first century, which is, okay... I can't do this specifically, but everything else that even remotely, uh, even if it's somewhat connected, as long as it's underneath that, I can go that far. This is a Pharisaical way of looking at the Bible. And so, are we continuing with God in that sense? Are we flirting with idolatry? Are we trying to serve two masters? Are we we creating an atmosphere that, that only lends itself to apostasy? Because if we take that first step it is so much easier to take the next one. Because we've already began on that journey. And and at some point, if we're willing to take those lesser steps, we will ultimately someday be willing to take the big leap. Because we'll just have gone further and further and further. And so Paul says, don't get to that point. Commit yourself to God. Remain true to Him. Well, not only that, but I also want to look at what it says at the end of verse 32. Not only does he say that, they need to, uh, that he is commending them to God, but he also says in verse 32, And I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, why does he commend them in this way? To the word of his grace. And I love the way he puts that, the word of his grace, not just God's word. But obviously, it, it, it is only the word that leads to that inheritance of the saints, salvation, salvation. Obviously, we can start, we just knock that right off the list. Because clearly, without this word, there is no inheritance. There is no way that you can be led to the inheritance. Which I think is already, you know, while it's a, a very easy point to make, it's a pretty big one and a pretty critical one. Because if you skip this, or if you try to go outside of it, you're not getting the inheritance. But beyond that, it's only this word that will build up the church. And I think that this is very important. Over in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 11. We looked at this as Bill Allison, Brother Bill Allison was going through um, a series of lessons on, on the eldership. But go again to Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 11. And it says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, The reason I wanted to go through that is because I think even here we see the very clear-cut case that without this word, there is no growth that can be had. Without this word, there is no progress that can be made. People may get progressive, but you're not going to get that from God's word. But progress, that's a different matter. Growth, that's an entirely different matter. And I think time, what happens often are, is people start feeling depressed and they start feeling isolated and they start feeling put down because I have been trying everything and for some reason there's just not the growth that I want. And ultimately I think it's because in some way, shape, or form we have somewhat neglected the word. Even if they're kind of sampling it from time to time, it's not the priority. And so of course there's not going to be any major considerable growth. Of course there's not going to be progress where it's needed. There will be no growth in Christ unless the word is first planted. And what is what is what is the seed but the word of God as it says in Luke chapter 8 verse 11. The seed has to first be planted before any growth can occur. And so without the word there can be no growth. Without the word there is no progress in unity. We can try to attain unity and peace Every way possible under the sun, but until we come back to this word, it will never ever be attained or achieved it'll just be some artificial band aid that really does not do anything but cover up you know uh cover up wounds that could be healing. There is no healing without the sword that makes the wounded whole i love I love that line in in, in that hymn uh oh church arise I know we don't sing it here uh, we don't have it in our songbooks. But, but th- there's that verse within that hymn that talks about that sword and, and we've talked about this before even but it, you know you look at Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 12 you look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2 that that word from Jesus' mouth that, that is the sword of the Spirit and what that sword does you know swords you know, they cut things they, they, they cut things up you don't necessarily look at a sword and say that's going to cause healing but in this case, it's the only thing that can. And there may have to be some cutting. There may have to be some pain. But if you want progress, if you want growth, if you want healing, this sword is the only thing that's going to do it. What if, and you know, maybe people come, you know, from, from the religious world or, or, or even outside of that, maybe, maybe even within the church, what if people come up and try to say things like, well, maybe we can just do something to, j- to just get by? We can just get by. Well, tell that to the churches of Asia in Revelations, uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. John had something very different to say there, didn't he? What if somebody comes and says, what if we just be accommodating? Again, look at what John says in 3 John. It's amazing how many different aspects of life John uh, uh, talks about when it comes to the Word. That, that Unless you argue with Scripture, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. When he talks about Diotrephes... John says, he's not saying, I'm going to stand up to Diotrephes because I'm just better than him. It's on the backdrop of the fact that he has the scriptures to to back him up. And and so are we bringing the scriptures with us in every single circumstance? If there is no unyielding commitment to God's word, we will, one, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, be tossed to and fro by every form of doctrine. We absolutely will. And no one can say, no, I'm stronger than that. I'm better than that. If you don't have the Word, you're, no, you're better than nothing. What are you talking about? What kind of hubris is that? And we, so we will be tossed to and fro by every form of doctrine. But secondly, we will never grow. We will only grow closer to death. We will only grow closer to perishing. And so if we want to, to grow, if we want to progress, if we want to go the other direction, we must commit ourselves to the Word of His grace. And again, I, I think that's so encouraging to think about how He terms it just that. Graceful. So we need to commit ourselves to the word of his grace. But finally, we need to commit ourselves to the service of the church and the service, uh, being in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Back over in Acts chapter 20 again, picking back up where we left off in verse 33. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship and so it is a bit of a, a a bitter sweet goodbye because there you know there are tears but there's love behind those tears <laughs> but when you think about what we just read what Paul talks about and he even brings up his own example and that's really what I want to focus on for the last few moments how was Paul a servant well he i mean Everything he talks about in Philippians chapter 2 as he speaks of Jesus' mindset, Jesus' attitude, how Jesus was a servant. I mean, he truly can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so how was Paul a servant? How how did he do so well in that that capacity? Because he was really striving after Christ, his example. And this is one of the main functions of individual Christians in the church. We are meant to serve. Now, we serve in many ways. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 11, first of all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And, And again, how do we build up? But through the word of His grace. But skipping down to verse 14. Look at how many different ways that we are supposed to be. Serving one another. It says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. There's one. Encourage the faint-hearted. There's another. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays with evil for evil, but always seeks after that which is good for one another and for all people. And so there are several, several, several ways that we are supposed to serve the church, serve our brethren. And and let me just say I'm not I'm not saying that we just there, there's no focus on the outside world but I do think that there's something to the point where Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 that we're to do good to all men but especially to the household of faith. <laughs> Sometimes I think Christians focus a little bit too much on on those that are not their priority but fall outside of their priority and 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 we <laughs> miss the forest for the trees. This when you look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 he was someone that didn't shrink back from serving in every capacity that he could. Every opportunity that presented itself, he was going to serve. And it wasn't in the same way every single time, was it? He didn't shrink back. And if we want to be a servant like Paul, if we want to be a servant like Jesus, we can't shrink back on any of these things either. We don't get to say, I, I like this part and this part and this part of what we just read. What includes being a servant? That's your job. that's yours, don't look at anybody else in this room. It's yours. And so am I doing that? And this means that we might have to bear more weight for some than others. We might have to bear more weight even though, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Go over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 in verse 1. Right after it talks about in Romans chapter 14, I think bearing with, with uh, the Christians with weaker faith even uses those, that kind of terminology but you get to chapter uh, 15 and verse 1 and he says now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification and, and I especially like how, it, how the language in verse 2 we are to please our neighbor for his good to his edification now, we, we might think, well, what does it mean to his good? You're going to have to do the research on that. You're going to have to do the work to figure that out. Because we're not going to be given a step-by-step list from the Scriptures. But what he does say is, you can do this. And so it's going to be a little bit more hard work for you. But in verse 1 again, you just see that, that same notion from, from the previous chapter. That we are going to have to bear some burdens. We're going to have to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And not just please ourselves. You know how we please ourselves. And I'm just using the same language from verse 1. We are self-pleasers. And we are not servants. When we decide that, you know, I understand that this brother has a weaker faith. I understand that they're struggling in one area or another. But I don't really want to do that. That's a self-pleaser. And that may be an indicator that you don't have the strong faith you think you do. You want to know who has strong faith? Servants. You want to know who has weaker faith? Those that haven't fully figured out how to be a servant yet. And so we're going to have to, serving looks like this. means helping one another without expecting them to return the favor. Regardless of the position that we're in or anyone else is in. Regardless of our capability or anyone else's capability. You have a commandment to serve. And Bill Allison talked about this in Romans chapter 12. We're not going to go there tonight, but you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, Paul making a very similar case that every single one of us, if you're a part of the church, you have a responsibility here. You may not be able to serve in the same exact way that someone else is in this room or outside of it, but you still have the responsibility to serve. And you don't get to abdicate that because "Eh, I'm not feeling it. If If you are satisfied with the weaker faith, by all means, But I don't want to be satisfied with that. And so someone, as we talk about this, may ask, how how do I begin serving? I don't know what to do. I would just say, look at this list that Paul gives to the elders from Ephesus. Be on the alert. You want to serve the congregation? You want to serve your brethren in love? You be on the alert for those that are going to threaten their safety. Not not talking about physically, although that would be a good bonus. That would be something to think about. But you think about their spiritual safety. That's a good way to serve. Commit yourself to God. You want to be a servant? You have a good relationship with Him. You have a right relationship with Him, fellowship with Him. You're going to be someone who can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Commit yourself to His word of grace. You want to be a good servant? You focus on that grace. You want to be a good servant? You follow after the pattern. We've got a very good pattern to follow after Christ. And finally, commit yourself to not just anyone, but the faithful. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of your issues, regardless of of maybe bitterness, regardless of, of past grievances, regardless of whatever the excuse may be, you start serving them, you start helping them and putting them over your issues. And I think that's a good way, at least from the beginning, to start trying to be a servant like Paul, ultimately like Christ. So those are the parting words of Paul. And again, I would just remind you that I don't think we should just look at these instructions and think, all right, that's, that's something good to hear. Can you imagine the tears that came from Timothy's eyes as he read the words in Second Timothy chapter 4? And you can even see the tears that come from these elders As they're saying goodbye and hearing these parting words from Paul. Don't just glaze over and think, hey, that's that's neat, that's a nice thing, that's pretty beautiful. No, let's let it affect us. Because if if we're struggling with, with letting just ourselves get glazed over and letting ourselves just kind of read pages on a word uninvested, it's a good indicator that we're not following in the same footsteps trying to be a servant. Because we can't even be touched by the scriptures. And so maybe that's where you need to begin. Have have you sought after God through his word? Have you been sat down and been willing to hear everything that he has to say? Because if you don't, you'll never get there. But if you decide that you're going to hear, that you're going to listen and act on it, be faithful in those things, repenting of everything that he says hurts and hinders a servant heart, Hurts and hinders servants of God. Be willing to make a confession on that belief and be baptized into the death of, uh, baptized into Christ's death to rise in the newness of life. You can have salvation. You can have that inheritance of the saints. And let me just pause. I promise, I'm I'm finished after this. But if you are not a Christian, I would to God that I could reach into your heart and touch you in some way that would move you. To give your life to Christ. I don't have that power. But even if I did, I'm telling you, you would be more moved and more benefited if you just listened and came to hear this word. And so, if you are not a Christian, think about where you are in your relationship with God, having none. And think about what you could have with Him. Don't you want that salvation and that inheritance? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.